is the word of the Lord. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking uh, to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And round the throne was a, a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Round the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, O Lord, our God, Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we uh, thank you for the book of Revelation, and we, uh, we see how small our minds and small our understanding is, and so we need your Holy Spirit to come and guide us into the mystery of who Christ, our, our Savior, is. And um, help us to understand uh, you, understand ourselves, to understand our world, to understand history, and to understand heaven. And so uh, we pray that you would be our <coughs> teacher now. And so uh, um, open our eyes to behold wonders in your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, today we are... Uh, returning to our study of the book of Revelation. Last summer, uh, we began looking at the book of Revelation. We looked at the first three chapters of Revelation. And, uh, and then this summer, we're going to pick up in chapter 4 today. And, and over the summer, we're going to be looking at chapters 4 to 11. And, uh, and so before we jump into chapter 4, which I just read, I, um, I'd like to give a little summary about how we as a church uh, approach understanding the, the book of Revelation. And this is important because I think it's, it's frequently, frequent that pe uh, people think that Revelation is largely about cataclysmic events that are going to happen in the future at the end of history. And a part of the reason that we think that's really not the main topic of Revelation is because of how the book starts. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 1 of Revelation, it, the opening sentence of the whole book says this, the revelation of Jesus Christ 
which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. At the end of that first paragraph, it says, the time is near. It's, as almost, it's almost as if the Lord knows, this is a strange book, you're going to come up with all kinds of ideas about what this book is about. So at the very beginning, I'm going to tell you that when this book was written 2,000 years ago, this is about events that are soon to take place and the time is near. And, uh, and when we approach the book that way, what we realize is that Revelation covers a lot of the same topics that the rest of the New Testament covers. Because the rest of the New uh, Testament is about events and things that happened in the first century in the early church. So, for example, the Gospels. The Gospels are about the life and death of Jesus. What happened to him? And then the book of Acts is about the early disciples and, and you know, when they were sharing the Gospel in the Mediterranean world and starting the church. And then all the letters in the New Testament are from pastors written to churches or to other church leaders about events that were happening in the early church. So you come and say, why would the whole New Testament be about one topic? And then we come to the Revelation and say it's about a completely new topic. And, uh, and so, in fact, Revelation is basically saying that what happened to Jesus in the Gospels, where he suffered, he died, he rose, and then he was uh, ascended into heaven and was enthroned in heaven, that same pattern is what's going to happen to Jesus' disciples. That's what's going to happen to us. That's what's going to happen to his early disciples. And so uh, in the Gospels, for example, we read about Jesus uh, in the last week before he was crucified. He went to Jerusalem, and he started saying that Jerusalem, within one generation, was going to be destroyed. And it was going to be invaded, and the temple was going to be destroyed. And, um, of course, if you know history, that happened in 70 AD. There were Jewish wars where it was a Jewish revolt against the Romans, and the Romans came and destroyed the temple in 70 AD. And so then Jesus talks about a city that's going to be destroyed. And then we come to Revelation, and we read about a city that's going to be destroyed. It's the same topic. It's the same message. And, uh, and so uh, what happens next to his disciples is the same fate of Jesus. Uh, Jesus was put on trial by the Jews and the Romans and was martyred. And uh, all the apostles experienced the same persecution. And all of his apostles also are put on trial by the Jews and the Romans. And they suffer. And so Revelation is a call to first century Christians to be faithful to the point of dying for their faith. Revelation is a book that prepares disciples for martyrdom. And uh, what it basically says is to the early disciples, if you're faithful to the point of death, Jesus now is reigning in heaven and you will reign with him. And I should say that purpose of the book is, should have the same effect on us. Revelation is preparing us for martyrdom, which of course is such an important word because you know, we live in a culture of comfort, wealth, decadence, ease. We are... Uh, you know, there's a real possibility of us becoming soft in a culture like this. And so are we uh, prepared for martyrdom? Would we let our blood be shed for our Savior? Or would we make excuses to say, why, I really shouldn't, God wouldn't really want me to suffer like that. He wouldn't want me to be persecuted the way Jesus was. There is no way that you can read the Bible and not think that Jesus expects if the, uh, Jesus doesn't expect that if you are a disciple of His, He expects that we should be willing to go to the cross just as He did. Now, the first three chapters of Revelation that we looked at last summer 
are about Jesus uh, sending letters of encouragement and rebuke to seven churches that were real churches in the early church in the first century. Now in chapter 4, the scene moves kind of from earth and the churches that are in the earth up into heaven. And you see that in verse 1 with what I just read. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. John, the Apostle John, who's, who wrote down Revelation, is being transported by the Spirit into heaven. In this chapter, we learn some important details about heaven. Now, I imagine that some of you, when you saw the uh, title of the sermon today that's about heaven, you probably thought this is about the afterlife. You know, what happens after you die? Christians go to heaven when they die. And what's going to happen after we die? Well, it's really not what this sermon is about. That's true. Our souls go to heaven, you know, to be with God when we die. But this is really about what is heaven, and, uh, and I want to answer that question by making three observations this morning from this passage. Three answers to what is heaven from this passage. And these are the three answers. That heaven is a capital city, heaven is a temple, and heaven has a history. Three points that heaven is a capital city, heaven is a temple, and heaven has a history. And I should say, some of you might get to the end of the sermon and say, like, whoa, that was a lot to digest and process. Well, Revelation is going to be that way. You know, there's a lot of explanation that has to happen as we go through passages like this and say, what is it talking about? Because it makes all kinds of connections to the Bible, all the Old Testament. We've got to make all those connections if we're going to really hear what God wants to say to us through this book. So three answers this morning to the question, what is heaven? And the first is this. Heaven is a capital city. Heaven is the capital city. And you see that heaven is a capital city, or at least heaven has a capital city. Maybe it's a country that has a capital city in it, because the key thing that is there is a throne, right? You see that in verse 2, where it says, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. So the reason heaven's a capital city is because heaven's where the king lives. The capital city is where the king lives. That's where the king's throne is. That's where he rules from is the capital city. And so what does this passage tell us then about God's kingship, the way he rules as a king from his capital city? Well, there's a couple of things I want to point out from this passage, okay? The first is that the Lord shares his rule with others. It's one of the beautiful things about our God, the God of the Bible. He shares his rule with others. He shares his leadership with others. And you see that in verse 4, where it says, Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Now, you probably wonder, who are these 24 elders that have these thrones in heaven? And I'll explain later in the sermon, right? Uh, why I do not believe these are human elders. I think they're angelic elders. But basically the scene here is you have a king with the, his council of friends and advisors. You know, a wise king, uh, Proverbs says, Proverbs says, um, without counsel, plans fail. But with many advisors, they succeed. So wise leaders, wise kings have advisors around them and, you know, giving them ideas and what to think about. And even the Lord is that way. He has his, his council and advisors around him. And you might say, why does... God, all-knowing, need counselors or advisors around him? Well, it's because uh, of his goodness. He wants to share his rule and leadership with others. I mean, don't we love that about him? That God brings other people into his rule with him? You know, it's very similar to why does God have you pray? 
Doesn't he know everything that you need? Doesn't he already know what he's going to do? Why does he have you pray? Because he wants to bring you into his life. He wants to bring other leaders into his life. And, uh, and actually, it's the same in the church. You know, the church mirrors heaven in many ways. And Jesus shares his rule and governance with the church, uh, with human church leaders, with church elders. Actually, the, the word there for elders is the Greek word presbyteroi, which we're a Presbyterian church, and which comes from that word presbyteroi. And, and throughout the Bible, it means elder. And all throughout the Bible, whenever you find the word presbyteroi, it's always in the plural. God's people are never led by just one guy by himself who's in charge of everyone. It's always a plurality of elders. There's always shared leadership because that's the way God is. Even in heaven, that's the way it is in the church as well. Shared leadership. And uh, G.K. Chesterton compares the relational God of the Bible who has, always has people around him and is relational, is a community to the kind of singular God, for example, Allah of, of Islam, who is very singular. He's alone. He's been alone from all eternity. And Chesterton says, you know, just as it's not good for man to be alone, it's not good for a God to be alone either. There's, if there's a God with no relationship, there is a certain harshness, you know, a kind of despot uh, of a ruler. And, uh, and this is what uh, Chesterton says about the Christian image of God, is that God is a counsel at which mercy pleads as well as justice. There's like these multiple voices pleading. And the conception of a sort of liberty and variety existing even in the inmost chamber of the world. Even in the inmost chamber of the world, there's a plurality of, there's shared leadership. And, uh, and so in this passage, there's the one great throne, but he shares his rule with lesser thrones. And if I could say one more thing about this. <laughs> Even the one great throne, there's not a singular person there. Because what do we read in this passage? You see in verse 5 how it says, From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. The seven, seven means the fullness of God's spirit. This is the Holy Spirit. So you have God the Father on the throne with his spirit who's on the throne. And then in the next chapter, the Lamb of God, who's God's son, Jesus is then going to be on the throne. So even on the one throne, there's not a singular, there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's community, there's relationship, there's shared leadership. And uh, God within his own being shares his rule. And this is why Christian civilizations throughout history have resisted a singular monarch who has all the power Christians are always, have always been saying there needs to be shared leadership in the government. There needs to be shared leaders. You know, we need checks and balances, right? We need shared power because even heaven is that way. That's who our God is, okay? So the first thing we learn about the capital city is that the Lord shares his rule with others. But there's a second thing we learn from the fact uh, that, heaven is, that heaven's a capital city. And the second thing is this, that the Lord is the only political leader who can truly bring peace. The Lord is the only political leader who can truly bring peace. And you see that in the little phrase there, verse 6, where it says, And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Now, if you were here last week, one of the things we talked about was how in the Bible, the image of the sea 
is a picture of the nations of the world that are, you know, violent and at, a, at war with each other. And, uh, and, you know, it's like the sea when there's a storm. There's all these waves and it's unpredictable and it sinks ships. And if you want to go die, you go out on the ocean. And so there's all this turbulence in unrest. But here before the throne of God, finally the sea is at peace. It's still. And, you know, I mean, is there anything that's more peaceful than calm water? You know, when you go on vacation, you, you, you're by a lake and it's quiet in the mountains. There's hardly anything like a still lake that brings peace to your soul. That feeling of peace is what heaven is like. That's what God's rule is like. It brings peace. And uh, only the reign of God can bring peace to human beings. And uh, now for the first Christians who are reading Revelation, that statement would be a political challenge. Because uh, the first Christians were living during the time of the Pax Romana. The Pax Romana is the Roman peace where uh, uh, Caesar Augustus had declared himself that he was the son of God. You know, Jesus is the son of God, and Caesar Augustus said he was the son of God. Who is going to bring peace to the world? And Jesus is the son of God who's going to bring peace to the world. Who's right? And so in the Pax Romana, there was, there was this union of the Roman Empire, but the reason they brought peace is because they crucified anyone who disagreed with them. And they required everyone to say, you are going to sacrifice, you're going to bow your knee and worship the emperor. And the Roman Empire would say, you know what, it doesn't really matter whether you think Caesar is actually the son of God. All we want you to do is to actually just bow your knee and give the sacrifice. We want you to obey. Even if it's a lie, it doesn't matter whether it's true, just give your obedience. And Christians refused. They said, we will not live by lies. It is not true that Caesar is the son of God. Only Jesus is the Son of God. And we too live in a world filled with political promises of peace. And these gatherings every Sunday, what we're doing when we come here is we are appearing before the throne that we read about in Revelation 4. We're appearing before the king and saying our ultimate political allegiance is to this kingdom, to this king, and we believe he is the only one who can bring uh, peace to, uh, to the world is the one who's enthroned in heaven. And I'll tell you what that means for us, because some of you, on the one hand, might hear that and think, oh, well, our political allegiance is to the king in heaven. So should Christians not be involved in politics now in, in our world? Absolutely not. Because, the fa you know, God is ruler over all aspects of human life, our families, our workplaces, our businesses, and politics. Of course, we want to bring God's wisdom and truth into the political system of our world. And yet, as we do that, it means that we recognize that peace will not come through any party or leader in the American political system. No matter the promises they make, they cannot give the peaceful sea that we see in this passage. None of them can do it. And we have to keep watch over our own hearts of where is our hope? Where is our devotion? This is the king who has our allegiance. Okay? So what does the capital city of heaven teach us? Well, two profound truths. That first, the Lord amazingly shares his rule with others. He's got the council of advisors around him. That's, we love that quality about our God. And he is ultimately the only political leader who can bring peace to the world. So heaven's first, a capital city. But there's a second truth about heaven we see in this passage. is also that heaven is a temple. Heaven is a temple. And in the ancient world, all the gods of the, the nations had 
temples. And usually the temple would have an inner room where there would be a statue that was enthroned uh, in the inner room of the temple. And that meant that the temple was basically a throne room. And in the Old Testament, uh, the Lord also had a temple. He, you know, under Moses, there was a uh, kind of a portable tent that, called the tabernacle. And, uh, and then under Solomon, they built a permanent house that was God's house. And if you went into the most inner holy place of this tabernacle or tent, there was a throne. The ark was called God's throne, except you wouldn't find a statue. There'd be no statue because uh, the true God is immortal and invisible uh, he is eternal. He cannot be contained in a statue. And so, uh, and so we do not worship images, but nonetheless, God said he would dwell in the temple. Now, what does this have to do with heaven? Well, in the book of Hebrews, it says this about the tabernacle. It says, they serve a copy and shadow of heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was... Uh, instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. And so in the Old Testament, when we uh, read about the tabernacle, and you, if you go, there's all these details about what the tabernacle was like, what was the temple was like. All those details are little copies and shadows of what it's like in heaven. You're getting like a peek, a preview of what it's like into heaven. And so when we do that, by doing that, it helps us understand what's happening in this passage when we are actually now entering into heaven and seeing what's in heaven. And it answers for us two questions. And the two questions are, who are the 24 elders in this passage? And second, who are the living creatures that are in this passage? And I believe that both of these are non-human angelic beings, but I'm, I'm going to take them in reverse order. So let me, let me explain them. So first, who are the four living creatures? creatures. Okay, end of verse 6. You see what it says there? And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature, like a lion. The second living creature, like an ox. The third living creature, like the face of a man. The fourth living creature, like an uh, eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around them within, uh, around and within and day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now, what are these living creatures? Well, uh, they're mentioned, if you go back to the, the book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament, Ezekiel chapter 1, you'll find these same creatures. You know, they have the faces of the ox and the, and the eagle and the lion. And uh, the details are a little different there. I'm not going to go into all the difference of the details. But if you go to Ezekiel chapter 10, it then says that these living creatures are cherubim. Cherubim are kind of like a high order of angelic uh, beings. And which makes sense that there are four cherubim on each side of the throne in Revelation 4. Because where do you see cherubim in the Bible? Well, you see them in the tabernacle. So, for example, uh, in the tabernacle, all the curtains had cherubim woven into the, the, the uh, curtains. And the ark, which was the throne of God, had two cherubim that were, you know, on either side whose wings were kind of covering the ark. And then actually when, uh, when Solomon built his tabernacle, he put two more cherubim in the most holy place. So in the most holy place, there were four cherubim, just like there are here. Four cherubim. And what this does is clearly places the interpretive lens for this passage in the temple. We are in this passage in the true temple, not the copy. 
You know, not, not the copy where cherubim are just like woven on the curtains or are made of metal. These are real living cherubim that are in the true temple that is in heaven. And when we understand that, then we can answer the second question is who then are the 24 elders? Who are the 24 elders? And you see them mentioned a second time in verse 9 where it says, And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. So who are these 24 elders? There's been different ways that people have answered it. I mean, one of the main ways, this is how I often read it, was, you know, well, where do you get the number 24? Well, in the Old Testament, there was 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 sons of Jacob. And then in the New Testament, there's the 12 disciples, the apostles of Jesus. So you've got 12 in the Old Testament plus 12 in the New Testament. Kind of God's people together, that's 24. And so the 24 elders represent God's people. And it, it could be that. But... Um, Probably, uh, but there's another explanation that I think is less obvious, but is stronger. And because the imagery of this passage goes back to the temple, you have to say, is there anywhere in the temple in the Old Testament where you saw that there were 24 people in the temple? Yes, there is. When King David was preparing for his son Solomon to build the temple, he appointed by lot 24 divisions of priests who served in the temple. And the only people that could go into the temple were priests. And the high priest had a, a gold crown that they wore. And these elders in, in uh, the 24 elders in Revelation 24 have gold crowns on them. And so what that's telling us is that David's priests were copies of these heavenly ancient angels who surrounded God in his throne room. And so you see that heaven is a capital city where the king lives. And it's a temple with cherubim around the throne and 24 angelic priests serving in the temple. And once we understand all this... We're ready to look at our final point, which I think is actually the main point of this passage. You know, what do, what's the purpose of all this? Why is this all important? Well, here we get to it. Is our last point is that heaven has a history. So heaven's a capital city, heaven's a temple, but third, heaven is a history. Heaven has a history to it. And what I mean by that is, you know, just as the earth has a history to it, you know, things change. Kings rise, kings fall, kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall. You know, um, there's change that happens in the earth. There's also change that happens in the history of heaven. And Revelation chapter 4 and 5 is describing the most significant change that has ever happened in the history of heaven. And you can see it in that little phrase at the end of verse 10. You see what it says there? This is about those elders. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Now, if you've ever read that verse before about them putting their crowns before the Lord, you probably think this is kind of a picture of humility, where they're saying, Lord, we're not the king, you're the king, and we're kind of doing this as an expression of humility before the Lord's kingdom. And it certainly is that. But what we'll see in chapter 5 is that actually a significant change in, in, in the history of heaven is happening. The new creatures who are going to reign with God on thrones are actually humans from every tribe and nation. And the reason these angels are laying down their crowns is because they're actually resigning their post in these thrones. And uh, what it's saying is that before Christ became a man, angels reigned with God. 
And in fact, the, the Bible says that angels are kind of like tutors to humanity. Uh, in the Old Testament, you know, the people of Israel li- lived under this law, the law of Moses. And it says the law was given by angels. And they were like children. It was like Israel were these children who needed to grow up until Christ finally came. They were children who were like royal children who were eventually going to become kings. And so, for example, in Hebrew two, Hebrews 2, it says, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Before Christ's death and resurrection, God's people were under the authority of angels. And so I'll tell you what it's like. You know, you imagine there's, you know, a nanny that works in a kingdom, and she cares for this child who's is going to become king. And throughout that child's uh, childhood, the child has to obey the nanny and do what she says, and she's going to teach him. But the nanny knows there is coming a day where this child is going to grow and become a man, and the authority is going to switch. And the nanny's going to have to bow her knee to uh, this child who will now be king, and she's going to have to give her obedience uh, to him. And he's the one who's now going to have authority. And, uh, and the Bible says that angels are like that. They're temporary tutors. But humanity is destined to sit on the throne with Jesus. And so in this passage, these old angels, these angels who had sat on these thrones for thousands of years in the old world, uh, they're resigning and their time has come where they're laying down their crowns. And what happens in the next verse, if we look at Revelation chapter 5, is the Lamb of God, who is a human, is now seated on the throne. And humanity takes the place on the throne. And in fact, if you go to the end of the book of Revelation, do you know who sits on the thrones in heaven with God and the Lamb in the end of Revelation? This is in Revelation 20. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Those who'd been martyred, been beheaded for the gospel, had now taken the place of the angels on the thrones. And so that brings us back to this question, what is why is this passage here? Revelation is about preparing Christians for martyrdom. And how does this passage about heaven influence martyrs? Well, it's basically the Lord saying, I know that on earth you will be mistreated, misunderstood, rejected, and even beaten and killed. All of that happened to Jesus. But in heaven, even the angels are moving aside for you. God will honor you and you will reign with Christ. So remain steadfast, endure, persevere. And why do, why do we think that all that's going to happen, that we're going to reign? Is because Jesus has already gone there before us. He's already suffered. He's already been raised. He's already been uh, the first human to enter heaven, and he's uh, already seated on the throne, and we will follow in his train. And so this is the picture of heaven we're given in this passage. Heaven is the capital city, not just of the unseen world, but of God's creation, of heaven and earth. It's the capital city over heaven and earth. And the Lord, the only one who can bring peace to this world, shares his rule with others. And in the old world, he shared his rule with these angelic beings, but the great event in the history of heaven is when the Son of God became human and has raised humanity to reign with God. And if you are in Christ, this is God's promise to you. This hope 
is for your endurance. That is the hope of heaven. Let it be our joy and our confidence. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you for these strange and difficult passages. We need to turn to many places in your word to make sense of it, and yet um, there's clearly truth here for us. And we pray that the hope that, that Jesus is now enthroned in heaven would be the source of our endurance, our loyalty to you. We pray that you would be preparing us as a people to endure whatever suffering you would call us to for your name. We trust you. And may we always respond to suffering the way Jesus did. Uh, he did not return evil for evil. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. But he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. And may you clothe us with the same love and endurance. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.